Father in heaven, I want to pray for my brothers and sisters who are bold enough to say, God, I need you. I need you, God, to touch me. God, I need you to empower me. I need you to strengthen me. And I know you see my circumstances. You see my situation. And God, I confess to you that I cannot do it on my own. That I need your Holy Spirit to invade me in such a way that you supernaturally work in and through my life. God, I believe that all things work together for good for those who, who are called according to your purpose. And that, God, you will work all things out according to your good as we trust you and as we believe you. And God, right now, I, I just recognize my need for you. So God, would you touch me? Would you heal me? Would God, you take your spirit and invade my presence? God, I can't do it without you. So Lord, rain down your spirit on me. Carry me. Lord, take me. God, use me. But God, I need you to take over where I can't do it anymore. And so I trust you. I believe you. I place my faith in you. And I ask for your healing and your restoration. I ask for your power and I ask for your mercy and your grace. Give me a double portion of your spirit. And I thank you that you hear the prayers of your children, that you intercede on our behalf. And that greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. That you will meet our needs according to your riches and glory through Christ Jesus as we trust your promises. We pray by faith, recognizing you are the God of the universe. And we ask these things all for the riches and glory of the kingdom of God. According to Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Amen. We are going to be in the book of Genesis chapter 18, one of the more controversial stories in the Bible. It starts in chapter 18 and goes through the book of chapter 19. I want to give you a little background on this text uh, because this is one of those texts where uh, people often uh, look at this and just say, I I don't get it. I don't like that God. Matter of fact, here's a statement I'll, I'll hear sometimes. I was in a, we were in Colorado this summer at the YMCA. Uh, camp and uh, I got to know this guy and we started talking and started talking about faith and I, I I asked him I said tell me tell me what you believe and he said well I tell you I I'm okay with you know with with the God of the New Testament I'm okay with Jesus New Testament the Old Testament I just don't go with that one I, I don't believe that and I, I'm not into that one that one struggles so I I don't really believe in the Old Testament don't really believe in that God I just kind of I kind of like the the God of the New Testament it kind of reminded me of Talladega Nights, you know, where I just want the little baby Jesus, you know, kind of deal. I just want, just want to believe in the little baby Jesus uh, kind of mentality. And a lot of people have that that mentality uh, that they just, you know what, the God of love and mercy in the New Testament. I love that God. He's so neat. He's so nice. I like him. Old Testament. I don't I don't like that one. I don't like that God. Can I tell you this just right up front? One of the reasons that we can know it's God that's speaking to us that it's not just our mind and our own thoughts, is that when we read the Word of God, there are things that bother us. We don't like them. If everything that you read is, I agree with that, and I like, no, that's nice. That's one that makes me feel good. That would just be your own conscious imagination. That would be a God that you invent, which many people do. That's really probably the most popular God worship today. The God of our mind that's nice and does what I want, that helps make me healthy and wealthy and is sweet to me, and that's the God. 
that I, I worship. You know what God that is? That's the God of the figment of your imagination. That's why God has revealed himself. That's why he is not like us. Most of us, as Norman Geisler says, we just kind of come up with a God who's kind of a superhuman guy. He's just like us, except he's powerful and he can do everything. But other than that, he thinks just like us. Can I tell you, God doesn't think like you at all. We're fallen and depraved human beings, and we're so removed from the essence of the pure and mighty and holy God that if he did think like us, he wouldn't be God at all. So that's why when we're reading through Scripture and we find things, and, and sometimes we, as we pray and sometimes we seek the heart of God, things come that we wouldn't come up with on our own. I wouldn't think like that. I wouldn't do that. I would never feel like that's not what I would do. That's because you're not God, and He is, and that's how you know it is God, okay? And so quit trying to make up this man-made idol in our mind that we're going to decide how God is. Because that's all it is. We're a lot more sophisticated. We don't put something on the uh, on the mantle. We just make it up in our mind today. And that is popular culture for today. That's what, in fact, most people do. So when we come to stories like this, we just think, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. That's disturbing. And I don't like the way God is acting right here. I don't think it's God at all. I remember when we first started church, I remember our first Easter, I had this lady came to me and she said on Easter Sunday, she goes, are you going to be like talking a lot about Jesus dying on the cross and nails going through his hands? Because if so, I'm not going to bring my kids in here. She had like a, a second, a third grade. She goes, I, we're just telling them right now that he hung up on the cross with ropes. And it really, and she goes, because I, I, I just... You know, I'm just trying to protect my children, and I don't want them to hear about blood and things like that. And I'm thinking, are they in school or what? Like, are you locking them in their room? And like, you just basically you've just deconstructed the whole gospel when you when you take away the blood of Christ, which has atoned for our sins. And yes, it's not pretty, and I wouldn't have done it that way. And that's why I'm not God, and you ought to be thankful. And you're not God either, but it's the way God chose to grant salvation and forgiveness of our sins. And so, yes, you know, if there are stories in the Bible, the death, burial, and, and, and the crucifixion of Christ is one of them. It's not pretty. It's not, it doesn't make me feel good. It makes me uncomfortable. And in the Old Testament, there's still the God of justice and the God of mercy, the God who's pure and holy and must deal with sin. And there are stories and there are situations that I'm uncomfortable. Sometimes he's just describing what happened. Other times it, there are acts of God that don't make me feel comfortable. But that's how I know it's God and not something that I have made up in my own mind and imagination. So let me give you just a little bit of background here real briefly as we look at the story of Abraham and Sodom and Gomorrah. We're not going to get into chapter 19 where everything takes place, but we're going to be right on the cusp of that. And um, I want you to, to understand kind of what's going on because the principal theological points that we see here is the God of justice and a God of mercy. And when we see this in this text right here, uh, of course, you know the story how God will ultimately judge Sodom and Gomorrah and how he will destroy them because of their sin. Matter of fact, uh, we see in chapter 19 that their sin is so pervasive as God sends messengers in uh, and Lot recognizes who they are and he takes them into his home because he understands how evil and wicked and depraved that Sodom is. They come and they beat on the door and they go, send those men out here that we might be intimate with them. 
They're knocking on the door. And the Bible says that all the men, young and old, so the city at least is represented, whether it was every one of them, we understand that it, it was pervasive in the culture. And basically what they're wanting to do is they're going to rape these men. That's what they're doing. Not a nice story, not a good bedtime story before the kids. And, you know, we read through the book of Genesis and we go, oh, let's skip that one. Hey, and I'm all about, I've got young children, I'm all about being sensitive and saying it correctly. But we have to be careful that we don't just completely strip the Bible of its power and of its message. So you explain that. I, I'm with you. I, I've got a three-year-old, or almost four and eight-year-old. I, I get that, and you've got to be tasteful. But let me tell you, this is what happened, and God is painting a picture. We even see in Genesis 13, 13, that God, the Bible tells us that the city was exceedingly wicked and evil. And not only that, it's interesting in chapter 14, you know, Lot has gone over there because it's a wealthy area. There's a lot of natural resources. Lot sees that. He goes over there. He wants to be where the money is. He wants to be where the action is. These cities are very progressive. They're very uh, wealthy and affluent. And so he goes there and he pitches his tent right outside of Sodom. And then at some point, uh, there's some kings and some other areas who come down in chapter 14 of Genesis, and they basically overthrow the king of Sodom and Gomorrah, and uh, they take the people off. They take all the goods, and Lot's one of those people uh, that, that, that are taken captive as slaves to go. And Abraham hears about it. Someone escapes, they come and tell Abraham. So Abraham gathers his army, and they go, and, and they recapture the people of Sodom, and they uh, defeat the army, and then they bring them back and they get all their goods and they get Lot and his family and, and all the people who've been taken away captive and they bring them back. And the king of Sodom says, I tell you what, I, I want to give you all these goods. I want you to take all that wealth. And Abraham says, oh, no, 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 no. Just, he says, uh, you let the people go. You take the goods with it. Just what you've had to feed my army is all that we'll take. I don't want it ever being said that the king of Sodom made Abraham rich. God has supplied the blessing. I serve Yahweh God and he alone shall receive the glory. So what we see is the city has been designated, you know, diagnosed as being evil in chapter 13. Chapter 14, they've been rescued by God's representative, and they know it's Yahweh God. And then in chapter 17 and in, 18, in chapter 18, we see here that um, the outcry of the people, the Sodom is so wicked that the outcry of those who are marginalized, of those who are weak, of the orphans and the widows are crying out to God because they're being oppressed. They're being taken advantage of. They're probably being cascaded to the outside of the city because of the wealth and influence and because of the power and the corruption within the city. And God hears the prayers of those people. And then as I told you what happens in chapter 19, uh, how he goes on to judge. You know, a lot of people want to say, well, I'll tell you why God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. It's because of homosexuality. It, it was more than homosexuality. We already know it wasn't just homosexuality. We know it was it was rape. It was the outcry of those who've been uh, been marginalized, those who've been abused by that society. There was much going on, and God says enough. Justice will occur, and we know that's always going to happen, either in this life or this life to come. So we see those principal issues: the mercy, mercy, and the justice of God in this text. Now let's look at it in Genesis chapter 18. With that background and that understanding and recognizing also three things that God speaks through his creation. We know that according to Romans 1. We know that according to 
Uh, Psalms 19, God speaks through his creation. We also know that God speaks through conscience, according to Romans chapter 2, that he speaks to the conscience even of those who've not heard of him, and that he speaks now through a country, through Israel. Uh, We know through this chapter right here and through chapter 15, God is raising up Abraham to be the father of a nation who will be a light unto the world so that others might know Yahweh's goodness and greatness. So starting with verse 17 in chapter 18 of Genesis, Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? And Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all the nations on earth will be blessed through him. Now, in this, I want to just tell you right up front, you see some Hebrew literature. There is some poetic language that's going on here, but in this Hebrew literature, these questions are being asked, uh, not as God's asking a question. Well, do you think I should tell Abraham what's going on? Okay, God is sovereign. God, is, God is, by bringing that subject up, even today when we go, well, should I go ahead and tell you this? That means we're going to tell him, okay? But this is really a form of literature that helps describe and helps to understand the narrative, the story that's going on here. So then the Lord said, shall I hide this from Abraham, what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised. And the Lord said, the outcry, and that word outcry in the Hebrew literally means the crying out of the weak and the oppressed, of the suffering Against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin is so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry and that has reached me. And if not, I will know. Again, this is a picture. This is a theophany anyway. God's appearing in, in the image of a man as he is talking here to Abraham. And we know that God ultimately does come in the form of man through the person of Jesus Christ. And he comes to this earth. He comes down. He's not just a God who sees and knows, but he's a God who comes and feels and experiences. He knows exactly where we are. And the Bible says, Then the men turned away and went toward Sodom. But Abraham remained standing before the Lord. And then Abraham approached him and said. And that word approached right there is a legal term. It's like an attorney coming before a judge. That's the picture we see, the approach. He approaches the bench, so to speak. And so Abraham, up to this point, uh, we have at least three prayers, three times that Abraham has made requests to God for the blessing of God. But we see the maturation process, the maturing of Abraham in this instance, because he's not going to ask for himself. Matter of fact, it's quite remarkable what he's about to ask. Abraham says this to the God of the universe. He says, what if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? I don't know about you, but is there something on there that makes you a little uncomfortable when he's talking to God? I mean, here's Abraham before the God of the universe. And what is he saying? God, let me just say this. Um, You know, do you really want to wipe these far out? Do you really want to kill the righteous with the wicked? Do you want to treat the, the the, the wicked and the righteous alike? Far be it from you, will not the judge of the earth do right? God, 
you wouldn't do this. You're not going to do that, are you? You're not going to punish the wicked and the innocent alike, are you? I mean, that wouldn't be righteous. You know, there's something un- uncomfortable for us as evangelical conservatives, you know, talking to God in that manner. And I mean, we're going to see that he just keeps on and he keeps on pressing the issue. And really, that's more from our own uh, interpretation, our own background, because God invites Abraham to come before him, to approach the heavenly council, so to speak, to approach God and say, tell me what you think. What do you know of me? Abraham, Abraham, remember, doesn't have the Bible. He knows God. He knows his mercy and his love at this point. He also knows that God is just. But he's asking, Lord, I understand how you're going to have to take care of those who are wicked. But God, what about the righteous? Are you going to do the same thing to them? And what does God say here? And the Lord said, if you find 50 righteous people in that city of Sodom, I'll spare the whole place for their sake. For that small fragment of people in this metropolitan area, I will spare the city. Then Abraham spoke again and said, Now, may I be so bold to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes. Do you see this? On one hand, he's so bold that he says, God, you have demonstrated to me that you are merciful. You have been mercy. I know that about you. I know that you are love. I know that you are grace. Can I be so bold to ask you? To do that in this case? Now, God, I recognize that I am nothing but dust and ashes. We see that he's bold, but he's humble. He recognizes he has no right. He recognizes that uh, he he can't demand or insist, but he's appealing to God's love, to his consciousness here. And he's appealing to God at this point and asking him to uh, show mercy. And what does God say? We see here that God says, uh, if I find 45, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke to him. What if there are only 40? He said, if there are 40, I will not do it. One commentator put it like this, that Abraham's a man who won't take yes for an answer. He keeps asking, what about 50, 45, 40? It's just like, it's like it's an auction here. He says, uh, well, then Lord, don't be angry with me, but let me speak again. What if there are only 30? That can be found. And he answered, I will not do it if you find 30 there. Abraham said, now that I have been so bold to speak to the Lord, what if there are 20 that can be found? And he said, for the sake of the 20, I will not destroy it. And then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me just speak once more. What if only 10 people can be found? 50, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10 Again, you know what's remarkable about this? Abraham knows how morally wretched they are. You know what would have been easy and makes what makes a lot more sense? God, would you get my nephew and his wife and my niece, would you get them out of there before you do this? Could you just kind of take care of my people? I know those guys work. I've already saved them one time. They shouldn't even be, and I can't believe the way that they're acting. But, but God, would you do that? But he doesn't say that. We see, you know what Abraham's doing? He's interceding on behalf of an entire city. Really, it's not just one city. Uh, scholars say there are actually five. Sodom is kind of like the Dallas, and then there are the suburbs around it. Okay? So this is a major area. And, and he's saying, God, if you could just find ten people, 
And what's interesting is that's the end of it. And then Abraham goes home. God said, okay, if you have ten people. And we're not certain why. We don't know if, if, God, if Abraham's thinking, oh, there's got to be ten. Good night. In a five-city metropolitan, there's got to be ten in there somewhere. And Abraham may think, I just did it. Or Abraham may recognize, you know what, I could probably go all the way to one. It's not going to make any difference. You probably couldn't make a case for Lot. I mean, it doesn't seem like Lot's living a righteous life. And by the way, the Old Testament view of righteousness in this time was what? Micah 6, 8, uh, that you walk justly and, and you demonstrate mercy and you walk humbly before the Lord thy God. That you love justice and mercy and you walk humbly before God. That you, you, you seek the God of goodness, the God of, of creation, and that you are just and merciful. There's no one just and merciful here. It's amazing. The city has become completely depraved. And Abraham has been interceding on its behalf. Of people who probably, Abraham knows, would not do the same for him. And who will later try to take the messengers that are sent and completely abuse them and, uh, and, uh, in unspeakable ways. And many think because they don't want outsiders coming in. They don't want to share the wealth or because they're just that wicked and depraved. And when the, when the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left and Abraham returned home. I'll tell you what is amazing, though. You know how salvation comes to us? The one who is righteous, his righteousness is imputed upon us, not because of our goodness, not because of anything we've done, but because Christ Jesus mediated on our behalf and his righteousness is imputed upon us so that we might grant salvation and forgiveness. So, in fact, this is a typology or foreshadowing of what's to come. Here's a whole group of people who don't seek the Lord, who have not recognized Him, who has who have basically turned their faces away from Him. And there's one who's willing to beseech, who's willing to go. And Abraham, in this day and age, before a king, uh, before, before God Himself, it was very reasonable to think, hey, if I don't approach Him correctly, I could lose my life. And he keeps begging and going and being bold. He risks his life for these who don't even know him or care about him. And that's exactly what God has done for us. I believe there's some lessons that we can learn about prayer here that are very interesting, though, as we look at this life of Abraham. And the first one is this, that God, that Abraham's prayer are real. His prayers are real. It's raw. We don't see him using any King James language as he's talking to God. He, he doesn't have any special phrases that he uses. He's not being fake. He's not going, oh, dear Lord, just bless us and keep us and protect us. Bless the hands that have prepared this food, whatever in the world that means. I mean, these little trite prayers that we've kind of made up in our mind that we just articulate with no heart. He's conversing to God. As a matter of fact, he's responding to God. God has spoken to him and he's responding. He realized God is speaking to us today through his word, through his spirit. And it's not a matter of God is speaking. Are we listening? Are we responding? Are we waiting for the God? Well, you know, that's not really what I want to hear. That's not really what I was looking for. God, I'm looking for something else. But Abraham said, I, I hear that. I, I, and I don't like it. And God, I've got some questions. God's okay with your questions. God, I've got some prayers. I, here's what I wish you would do. God, here's what I'm asking you to do. According to your great kindness and your love and your mercy, this is what I'm asking. And, and be real with him as Abraham is real as he comes in prayer. 
The second thing that we notice here is that he prayed often. He has such a relationship with God. There's such a familiarity with God that as he approaches him, he knows who Abraham is and God. Abraham understands who God is. He understands he's a God of justice and mercy. He's a God who he has been talking to and conversing with. He's a God in whom he is bold with. And he comes before God because he understands the kindness and the mercy of God. He says, may I be so bold. I recognize in humility who I am. I'm nothing but dust and ashes. But I'm also, Lord, I'm going to come before you because I believe this is in line with your nature and your kingdom. And so he boldly asked God to spare them over and over and over. He keeps asking, just like the judge in the parable that Jesus talks about, the unrighteous judge of the widow who comes over and over asking. God wants us to ask. It's just like our children. We want our children to ask us for help. We want our children to ask us for direction. Hey, I'm going to provide for my children, but it, I love it when they ask. I love it when they recognize their need for me. And God loves it as well when we commune with him, when we're real with him, when we come before him. The third thing we see is that Abraham was kingdom oriented. His prayer was kingdom oriented or the new word today is missional. It was missional. It was about the salvation of a city. He wanted to see others Others uh, spared. Matter of fact, that word spare literally means to forgive in the Hebrew. He wanted to see them forgiven. So he's missionally praying for a people group that's not his own. You know, I think about Monica Miller, who will uh, be here later uh, next month, who will come and who's been serving uh, in Africa to an unreached Islamic people group. And she has given her life for a group of people who probably we know would not do the same for her. But she is beseeching, she's interceding on their behalf. She is sharing of her faith, sharing of her life, because God has put it upon her heart. That's that's big time maturity, isn't it? Because most of us go, I don't think I'd do that. Hey, if you went to see where she lived, you really would say that, okay? But God has overwhelmed her heart, and she is living missionally, kingdom-oriented. And that's exactly what Abraham's doing. He's praying for the kingdom of God. He's praying for the mercy of God to be upon these people. He's interceding on their behalf. By the way, this Wednesday night, we're going to come and we're going to pray. And we're going to pray and ask God to work in our city, to work in our church, to ask His blessing. And we don't do this very often. We're doing it a couple times a year at night. And then the following week, we're going to start at Wednesday mornings at 7 a.m. If you can come, we want to invite you to just come pray with us as we ask for God to touch our people, to touch our church, to touch our land. And here's the bottom line. Prayer isn't the only uh, tool that God has given us, but it's the most powerful tool that he has given us to impact our world. And Abraham knows this. And the last point we see is Abraham asks for the big. He does the big ask, the big prayer. He doesn't say, God, would you just get my family out? Just take care of my family. Just get Lot and his two daughters and his wife out of there. And I know, by the way, maybe he would have said, and they're engaged, you know, they're betrothed to these other two guys. Get, just get them out. I'd appreciate that. That's all I'm asking for. He didn't do that. He didn't say, God, would um, God, would you just um, take care of some of them? You know, I noticed when we went and rescued them that there, there seemed to be some people smiling. I think they were probably fairly nice people. God, I understand you get rid of all those wicked people, but if there's some people that are just kind of nice, would you just take care of them? That's not what Abraham says. You know what Abraham says? God, would you save the entire city, the metroplex area? He's praying big. I mean, when we hear prayers like, God, 
I just want to see you work in our city. I want you to save Dallas. We go, whoo, boy, I don't think you understand what's going on in Dallas. <laughs> That's Abraham's prayer. He's saying, save the whole city, God. Spare them. Forgive them all. He's praying big. He's asking big. And you know what? We ought to pray big, too. I'm convicted in the early days when we first started this church. I was just thinking, God, Lord, if we could just see a 100 people in the history of our church come to Christ, that would be so wonderful. God, if we could just see a couple people go plant, a couple people go to the mission field. God, would you just, that would be big. And I look back and I'm just going, Man, as for big, you know, and, and, and I look at some of the goals we have, you know, God, we want to see a thousand children sponsored. And we, we're at 587. We've got to 2015. We're going to get there. But you know what? I, I'm thinking, God, would you do 2,000? Would you do 5,000? Would you do 10,000? God, would you, we've had nine people leave our church and go plant. God, would, would you send a hundred, a hundred people to go plant? Would you send a uh, hundred to the mission field? God, would you impact our city? Would we see hundreds of people accept Christ and be baptized? God, would we see hundreds of people have their lives restored and their marriages put back together? God, would you heal? To just take the limits off and start asking God to move and to do things that you and I can't do. You see, there's what the government can do, and it's it's about like this. There's what you can do through your own effort. It's about like this. And then there's what God can do through prayer. And there's no limit. There's no lid. And right here you've got Abraham, the father of the nation, asking God to do something big, who's coming before God and saying, hey, God, I'm willing to take me, do whatever you have to, but Lord, would you save the masses? God, would you save the unrighteous? And we know ultimately because of God's justice, for him to be righteous, he must deal with sin. We've talked about that before. That sin must be dealt with either here or in the life to come. God will judge sin. We're going to talk about that next week at the Bema seat. And I, I, I want you to come next week and bring a friend. Uh, if you ever wonder what happens when we die, what about, judge, what about judgment? What about rewards? We're going to talk about that next week. But here's the truth of it is because he is holy and he is merciful, because he is love, he must deal with the injustices of life. There must be a just recompense of reward, the Bible tells us, because he is a holy and pure and perfect God. It's not the way you would do it, probably not the way I would do it. It's the way the holy God of the universe does it. And we don't get to make judgments. We get the the option of bowing down and worshiping and recognizing who he is. We can ask him all the questions we want, but at the end of the day, he's God, and we trust him and his sovereignty. So what about you today? What are you praying today? We all ought to be praying one of four prayers. First prayer. God, I, I want to believe. I want to know you. I, I confess my sin before you, and God, save me. Second one, Lord, I repent. I recognize I'm a sinner. I recognize I've fallen far away. God, I repent, and I, I want you to use me. Third, God, yes, Lord, use me. I'll serve. I'll help. I'll do what's needed. God, yes. The answer is yes, use me. I'm ready. It may not be exactly what I was thinking or what I was looking for, but yes. And he may be asking you, he probably is, to intercede on behalf of someone in your sphere. Whether it's family, friends, co-workers. Who is it that you're praying for daily that they would come to know the love and the mercy of Christ, the salvation of Christ?
Think about it. You should be praying at least one of those. Some of you ought to be praying three of them. Starting with, do you know him? Number two, is there something you need to repent of and, 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 and kind of recenter? Number three, yes, God, use me. I'm ready for God. I'm praying for some. Lord, I'm praying for me. Can I just tell you that? I, we had a neighbor one time in a place we lived. And I remember the neighbor, the neighbor when we got there, somehow they found out we're a minister. So when we would walk out, they'd walk in. You know, anytime we'd walk, they'd walk right back in. Hi. They'd walk right back in. And they just kept doing that. It was kind of comfortable. They kept saying hi, pulling up. And they st- then they started doing our car. I mean, they, we didn't get to wait, you know. And it was like zero response. And we just started praying for them every day, praying for them all the time. And you know what happened about four or five years? Um, our neighbor went into the hospital with a life-threatening uh, illness. They, they said, you, you may not come out of the surgery. And um, we decided, you know, let's go over and see them. So we went over and we prayed. We said, can I pray for you? So we prayed for him, put hands on him, prayed for him, and uh, God ended up healing through that. And through that time, they became open to the gospel and, and accepted Christ and received him. And you know, I go back, you know where that started? That started when you were praying for somebody who won't even come out the door and look at me. And I recognize it doesn't always happen that way. Sometimes it's 10, 15, 20, 30, 50 years. But that doesn't negate the responsibility we have to pray. There's no one beyond his scope his touch, his reach. And you know what? He will move and speak to them. And it won't be like you think. And you might not get to see the results. But can I tell you that prayer works. Do it. Let's pray. I want you to think about this prayer. And as Christy sings this prayer, make it your prayer unto God this morning. And our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Yeah.